0: We'll hear argument next in case 19161, the Department of Homeland Security versus Thrasingham. Mr. Needler.
1: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Congress established the expedited removal system in 1996 for aliens who arrive at our borders or enter illegally and have no entry documents. Such aliens are clearly inadmissible and have no right to be in this country. Congress reasonably concluded that a full-blown removal hearing was not necessary to make that determination. Congress was also concerned, however, for about the possibility for delay and abuse of the asylum system if every time such a clearly inadmissible alien sought asylum. What it did then was to provide for a three-tiered administrative screening system to first determine whether the alien had a credible fear of persecution. Respondent contends that the suspension clause requires a fact-laden judicial review of the negative fear, credible fear determination made in that screening process. Congress, however, while it preserved habeas corpus, tailored it, To the special circumstances of expedited removal by limiting it to whether the alien is eligible for expedited removal and whether such an order was entered. Congress's judgment that that approach was necessary for the control of immigration and control of the borders is entitled to great weight and it is consistent with the suspension clause. First, Congress has repeatedly said that an, an alien seeking admission is entitled only to the procedures Congress has provided. And it has held for more than 100 years that Congress may vest the determination of whether an individual alien is excludable in an executive officer. Indeed, it's said that a determination by such an officer acting within his jurisdiction is due process for purposes of the Constitution. And when such an order is issued under this system, that expedited removal order establishes the government's right to detain him. A forciare, that is true when when you have a situation involving an inadmissible alien who seeks review of a negative screening determination for possible relief from removal, notwithstanding his inadmissibility. Mr.
2: Needler, um, it's one thing when an alien comes and has no protected ground to stay here. There's no legal right to stay. And so expedited proceedings are okay because they have no right to be here. But when someone's seeking asylum, they have a statutory right to stay if they meet the elements of the statute. So that's a vastly different question of whether the suspension clause, which predated the due process clause by 100 years, the suspension clause at the time it was viewed as permitting anyone who had a legal claim to stay to file a habeas petition. I don't know how that right all of a sudden gets transformed merely because there's a second constitutional right to due process, meaning those are two different provisions of the Constitution. One predated the other. And the finality era cases were very clear. If you have a claimed right to be in the United States, whether you're on the shore from a boat that's landed or you're from Puerto Rico and you think that your citizenship gives you a right to come in, whole slew of cases from the finality era under the suspension clause who said you have a habeas right. So I don't know how that's the same thing. You assume the person has no clear right, but they do have a right to stay if they meet the criteria of the Asylum Act.
1: So, several responses to that. Th- those finality-era f- finality cases all uniformly hold that a court may not review uh, a, the determination in an individual case whether the alien has satisfied the conditions for removal. And, uh, and so, and, and the Court has held that Congress may vest that determination in an executive uh, officer and that that is sufficient. And for habeas corpus purposes, that sufficient determination establishes the executive's power to detain the Suppose individual. Suppose
3: that uh, Congress passed a law which said, make it an alien who has been here for some time, but perhaps illegally, uh, walking down the street. And uh, an officer picks him up and puts him in prison. And he would like to say to a court, Judge, the officer was wrong on the law. He has no such right. But we have a statute that says, Judge, you can only review whether he did order him put in prison. Would you say that's consistent with the purpose of habeas? Which after all, since I guess the 15th, 17th century, 16th century, 15th century, maybe earlier, has said the purpose of habeas is to review the lawfulness of what the, of what the officer has done. Not to just review whether he ordered him put in jail. And that right became a right of the people. Not just the king. The king wanted to see if his officers were following the law. Now, they may have a lot of discretion and so forth, but here we have a statute which says, Judge, you cannot determine whether the officer has followed the law. All you can determine is whether he issued an order saying keep him in jail or send him wherever or whatever. I mean, the inconsistency with habeas and the right of the people to bring it, to see if the kings or the presidents or whoever's officers are following the law, would seem fairly seriously undermined, wouldn't it?
1: Well, that is what you're describing is quite different from what we have here again respondent like any almost any alien in expedited removal does not challenge the fact that he has no right to be in the country what he what he seeks is uh, review of a of a screening determination that he is doesn't have a credible fear uh entitling him to or enabling him to get relief notwithstanding his inadmissibility
3: yeah, yeah and, he's saying i have a right to no, be here because i have a i claim for asylum but it's it's very it's very different the, and there and no one has
1: pointed to any anything at at, uh, at common law or in the finality determination uh, cases of a situation where a person is inadmissible conceitably but wants to um, receive relief from removal. And that's significant.
4: Asylum, for example. I I, I guess I just don't understand this, Mr. Needler, because on certain conditions, if he shows certain things, he has a right to asylum. And what he's trying to get is a hearing that adequately determines whether he can show those things. So, you know, on certain conditions, he has a right to release. He has a right to live in this country. And that's exactly what he's challenging, but is whether – is is his getting a fair hearing to determine that question.
1: This is a very different context where someone is saying not that he has a right under domestic law to be in this country, but that he, he doesn't want to be sent back to another country because of his fear of conditions there. This is directly um, like – the rule of non-inquiry in, that has been applied for many, many years in extradition, which is one of the analogies that respondent draws. A, a court may not review the determination in the extradition context of the executive's determination about whether a per- the treatment the person might uh, experience in another country. But this- you
4: don't contest, do you, I guess I'm just not really quite understanding this argument, because you don't contest that under the statute, if he shows certain things, he has a right to remain in this country as an uh, uh, per the asylum statute.
1: Well, uh, for, again, asylum is discretionary. He does not have a right under, under the asylum statute. And Congress, in affording a right to go through the screening process, was not required to attach to it. Judicial review. If, if, if Congress knew that was coming, maybe it wouldn't have provided for asylum at all. And for withholding and cat protection, as, as was clear from the prior argument, that does not a, afford a right to be in this country. It is simply a withholding of being sent to another country. This Court's unanimous decision in Munaf is very much on point in that respect. The Court there held that it is not for a court in habeas corpus, even involving a citizen, to review the the conditions of the place where the uh, person would be sent. Here we have an alien in expedited removal who who is assimilated to one at the border who has no right to be in the country. You might. I mean, there
3: might be circumstances, or even on your argument, the — Claim is a claim that this particular judge, who is an immigration official, this particular individual, behaved unlawfully, contrary to the Constitution. He didn't even come into the room. You've read their brief. He did it for religious reasons. He's against us. He did it because, I mean, there are certain claims that it's possible Congress cannot take away without, let's say, a hearing, which they've had and the individual lost it. I'm having a hard time, because I can think of analogies, uh, distinguishing it from a case that's like this. But what happened, he's walking down the street and thrown into jail. And and uh, there he claims, you know, saying you, you see the analogies. Well, Tell I, me why there are no.
1: Actually, choice. I don't see the analogy because this is a very uh, different and limited and focused context, where an alien who who has entered illegally has no right to be in the country, and nonetheless is asking for. Basically, mercy under the statutes that Congress has enacted. Maybe but that's under a, the, under I, I, the
3: I don't know. You'd have to at least, if he has a right to mercy under the statutes. Look, uh, there are all the not, Chinese cases and so forth, you know, the Chinese exclusion cases and so forth, which analogizes it very much for habeas purposes in turn to being put into jail. I mean, for habeas purposes. And so if you accept all those cases, then what?
1: Even looking at it in that way, what those courts repeatedly hold all the way back uh, to the uh, court's decision in ECU uh, more than 100 years ago is the fact-finding, the, the, the uh, whether the person, as a matter of fact, uh, comes within the scope of the statute, may be committed entirely to an executive officer, and that is due process. And once the executive officer, acting within the, his jurisdiction, makes that determination, that establishes the executive's ability to at- detain uh, the person. And that is particularly true, as I say, where the question is not whether the person is entitled to come into this country because of domestic considerations, but where the claim is, based on please don't send me back to another country because of conditions in that country. And that is squarely, in addition, in the realm of the rule of non-inquiry, where Congress may, if it wants to, after a full removal hearing, it is provided for review of CAT claims and withholding claims. But this is a – this is a – a system deliberately designed by Congress to be a quick screening so that the system does not get bogged down and delay in which aliens would be here for a long period of time and maybe get released into the population because there's no sufficient bed space. What Congress did was try to accommodate the interest in affording a person to at least make a claim of asylum and the need for expedited removal by having this screening system. And what Respondent is seeking here is basically a fact-laden review. No statutory interpretation question is involved here. What he wants is a fact-laden review of the determination that he has not established a credible fear. Even in the context of whether an alien is excludable, that was not reviewable under the long line of this Court's uh, decisions during the finality era, but in addition, because of the nature of the, of the screening involved here concerning fears of conditions in another country, a, a situation in which, again, this court unanimously and Munaf held was not, uh, necessary, uh, w- w- uh, did not have to be reviewed under habeas corpus for a United States uh, citizen to does, examine the condition. Does your, sorry,
5: does your constitutional principle change at some point, based on how long uh, the non-citizen has been in the country, even though unlawfully.
1: Well, uh, we think Congress is entitled to make a judgment about about how long the, uh, the, that period should be, and Congress has established a two-year limitation. And we think that that judgment is entitled to great respect. Significantly, though, what's is, at issue is there here? an
5: outer boundary to that? Do you think uh,
1: there, there may well be? But, I, but again, this is an act of Congress, and we think Congress's judgment along those lines, should be respected.
3: I was going to bring it, but I will. Uh, why? Why? Uh, the normal way, I think, this is just my view, but the normal way that courts have dealt with the kind of problem you're raising is you say something like, there's tremendous discretion on the part of the executive branch. Or sometimes, it's a political question, we won't even review it. But Boumediene says that the detainee has the right to go into court under habeas and to make his claim. Now, the judge, which Boumediene didn't really talk about, may have tremendous discretion, may not, may say it's up to the executive branch, may say all the things that you said. I don't know. But what you can't do, at least under Boumediene, is to take away his right to go into court and to make his claim to the judge. What is your response?
1: My response is Congress did not take away habeas corpus. Congress preserved habeas corpus. And as Boumediene itself said, uh, uh, habeas is a flexible, adaptable remedy. And what Congress did here was tailor it to the specific circumstances of expedited removal. Again, and, and uh, even even in the in under ha- traditional habeas in the immigration context, courts did not review factual determinations, and in particular, they should not be required to review. Congress doesn't so have So is provide. your
2: so is your position, so I understand it. Let's assume, and I'm borrowing Justice Breyer's assumption, that there is an error of law either of law or of application of facts to law. And I know you'll dispute that, mixed questions. But assuming there's a mixed question or there's an error of law, are you still saying that habeas relief is unwarranted, cannot be given? Because as I understand this statute, there are only three reasons that you can get judicial review, and none of them have to do with errors of law.
1: Yes. We think Congress is not required by the suspension clause to provide for review of errors so of law how, how in, this, you,
2: in this context. All right. So how do you deal with the finality of the error cases? You're absolutely right that they said that um, fact-finding by the executive could be done by the executive. But all of them presumed that there was still a habeas right to challenge
0: errors of law. Well,
1: it, it, uh, those cases don't actually hold, in our view, that the suspension clause required that. But putting it to one side, they did not involve the situation here where what a person is, is seeking is review not of a statutory right to come into the country because of domestic, satisfying domestic requirements, but review of a desire not to be sent to another country because of
2: conditions here, there. And we I'm think sorry, the whole idea of freedom life, liberty, and freedom, is, and what the finality era cases showed, is that you have a right to remain if you have a right to remain. And so if they have a right, a legal right, a legal error has been committed with respect to asylum, doesn't matter whether they're seeking release here or not to be turned back somewhere else, your freedom has been stopped. That's what all of these Chinese exclusion cases were about, people at the shore, people who were stopped at a border. The shore is equivalent to a border. So I'm having trouble with your argument because you're turning around what the idea of habeas is. It's when the government stops your liberty of remaining if you have a right to remain. You have a right not to go someplace else. I I, I don't think the court can look – just at the finality
1: cases, although we think they answer the question here because this is a fact-laden review. The Court also has to — No, but you're
2: going further now. No,
1: but the Court also has to consider that the rule of non-inquiry cases in which the Court has repeatedly held, all the way back to Neely, with a lineage as as old as our immigration laws — that uh habeas re- review is not available to review the conditions or what will happen to the person when he goes to another country, That's even not for the questions issue. of
2: law. The, the focus is, of habeas is not the issue of where you're going to be released to. The issue is, are you going to re- be released here? But, but, but if, not, right. if,
1: so, if someone is um, sought for extradition purposes and they are in the United States and, and they are claiming, don't send me to another country, that has requested my extradition because of what the procedures will be there, what treatment I will be I I will receive there, the rule of non inquiry has sustained the ability of of Congress not to provide for judicial review. And that was true in
4: MUNAF in this. I'm not quite understanding why that would be. If you look at the finality era cases, uh, these are people who had basically no connection at all to the United States. Some who had not entered the country, not citizens, not nothing. And you're saying that they were entitled to a kind of, uh, proceeding that, uh, th- this person is not just because he's, has, you know, sort of the, the, the best kind of claim you can make to stay in this country, which is that if we turn you back, you'll be subject to torture or persecution. Why should that be person be treated uh, less well in terms of the kinds of pr- procedures he can invoke than the person in the finality era cases, which had no connection at all and 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 who had no fear of persecution or torture. Uh, again, in the
1: finality era, era cases, the qu- courts did not review the fact-based determination about whether someone came within the statute. And they specifically did not include the situation where the where the claim is about conditions in another country. In the in this court's decision in MUNAF, it might have been claimed that the Secretary of State was somehow misinterpreting CAT when he decided that the that the person should be or the Department of Defense, whoever stayed in an extradition case, might be misunderstanding uh, the, the, um, interpretation of the treaty. But, but, the but your view, it,
4: you know, it does not only speak to pure factual matters. Your view, uh, uh, applies to legal matters and mixed questions as well. But there's no statutory interpretation question here, but, but, just, well just there's if, a view as to whether the hearing officer filed the uh, followed the appropriate procedures
1: but that is a fact laden review that would require unpacking what happened would require uh the the the, the, the usually record- we
4: don't think that you know did you follow the law as to the procedural uh uh, requirements that the law states is a fact-laden review. I think it's a pretty common thing for courts to do. It's nope. like, did this executive officer follow the procedures that he was supposed to follow?
1: No, the, the courts, the, the, there are no decisions in the finality era that are pointed to that that provide for that kind of review. But again, in Munhoff, uh, in But in why Munoff, should
4: that kind of review be so different? I mean, that's a pretty basic it, question. I mean, for, for, did the executive officers follow the rules that he was supposed to follow?
1: If I could just step back for a moment. The, 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 the common law, the finality error cases, all the sources that are looked at, nothing affirmatively establishes a right of judicial review of this sort of screening determination that Congress decided could be attached to the expedited removal system. And Congress's judgment in, those, in that situation should be entitled to great respect, especially uh, against I, the background of the rule of non-inquiry. Yeah.
0: I think you've been trying to make a point about Munaf, and I'm. Yes. I'm wondering if you could tell me what it is. Yes.
1: No. No. The the, the point is that there was no uh, review in habeas of the determination that the person should be turned over to Iraqi authorities, where the claim was: if I'm turned over there, that person, you know, I may, I may right. Be so, frustrated. what is what is
0: the analogy to this the, situation?
1: Same thing here, where the person is saying, uh, "Don't, don't. I want a court to determine whether." Uh, uh, to, to review a, an executive determination as to whether I will be tortured in another country, um, and in Munaf, the court didn't try to separate whether the executive had decided a question of law, a question of fact. It was sufficient that the executive had made a determination regarding conditions in another country. Here, there's even less review because it's an initial preliminary screening to see whether the person has even made a credible fear showing about conditions in another country. And we think that that is squarely within the, the realm of things that habeas corpus does not have to be available to second guess the executive's determination otherwise you could have considerable delay uh, there are 9000 as we point out in our brief there are 9000 uh, negative credible fear determinations that have been made in recent years 100000 credible uh, uh, credible fear Referrals, if judicial review is added on top of this with uh, close parsing of the limited administrative record that this process provides for, it would really bog down uh, the system. And we think congress 's judgment that that is not constitutionally required is entitled to great uh, respect, otherwise you will have uh, protracted proceedings it could, it could lead to aliens. Being released into the country that in turn could create an incentive to come to the country and, and be released and undermine the whole point of Congress enacting the expedited removal system.
0: Thank you, counsel. Mr. Gillespie.
6: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. The statute here eliminates any meaningful role for the courts, even to ensure that the statutes and regulations were followed. During the 60-year finality period, Congress also tried to exclude the courts, leaving only that review that was, quote-unquote, required by the Constitution. This Court nonetheless continued to review legal claims in habeas. It did so while expressly rejecting the government's argument that deportation was not the type of restraint That triggers habeas. It did so critically in cases to review statutory and regulatory limits, even where the court expressly held that those particular non-citizens lacked constitutional procedural due process rights. It did so where the non-citizen was seeking initial entry, where the non-citizen was in the country illegally, and most critically in response to what the government said, in cases where the non-citizen was removable and seeking only to challenge the denial of relief from removal. The finality-era cases are consistent with the common law and answer each of the government's arguments. The government has cited no common law support. Moreover, the government's undefined meaningful ties test is unworkable. It would also mean that asylum seekers and potentially millions of other unknown non-citizens inside the country could be summarily expelled without any judicial review, without even any administrative review. The suspension clause is a check on the political branches. This Court has never before allowed the elimination of judicial review over the legality of deportations. The Court once again should preserve habeas review, as it did during the Chinese exclusion era, the finality era, and throughout the country's history. The political branches undoubtedly have enormous power – in the immigration area. But the one thing it cannot do, and this Court has never allowed them to do, is remove a check on themselves. So I want to address what I, what I see as the government's fundamental point now. Their opening brief made very broad arguments about having no habeas at all. What they've retreated to now is, well, you were found inadmissible, you're in the country illegally, and you're only challenging relief, and no finality addresses that. That's absolutely wrong. And let me just give the Court two cases. One is Accardi decided the year after Heckler v. Barber said the only review under this regime is that which is required by the Constitution. Accardi came into court and said, yes, I'm in the country illegally, but I'd like to apply for a discretionary form of relief that will allow me to stay in the country, suspension of deportation. The Court reviewed it in habeas, found a regulatory violation, and sent the case back for a new hearing. Let me give you one other that involves refugees, Todd v. Waldman. They came to this country seeking initial entry. The general admissibility rule was you had to be literate. The the Jewish refugees in that case said, but we are refugees, therefore we can stay notwithstanding being illiterate. The Court found that that was true on the merits and sent the case back for a new hearing. The critical conceptual point and the reason those cases are right, and I think the government will concede this when they get up on reply, is that the predicate for removing someone is both you have to find that they are removable and you have to find that the CFI process was conducted legally and they were legally denied the forms of relief To which they were applying in the CFI process. You may not remove a person until the CFI process is concluded. The Government will, I think, has never disputed and will concede again that Mr. Therassian could not be removed based just on the inadmissibility. Congress has set up a system where you are allowed to apply for asylum Withholding and Convention against Torture relief, and I would,
7: I would note importantly that those latter two forms of relief are mandatory, well, not what, discretionary. What's unusual about this situation is that uh, your client really doesn't want to be released, and the government makes this point over and over in its brief. Um, it, the government could take him to the airport, give him a ticket, and say, "You are released," and he could leave. That's not what he wants. And, and the fundamental point of habeas is to secure release from what's claimed to be unlawful executive custody. So what is your answer to that? Right. So our
6: client does ultimately want release. But what he has asked for is a new hearing, which is consistent with the way immigration works in criminal cases and habeas, what this Court called conditional release, which is for the benefit of the government. He would be thrilled to just be outright released and have the order vacated. What he, then he would be in this country and he would apply for a asylum well, he wants to be,
7: he wants to be released in this country so that he can remain in this country. He doesn't simply want to be released And therefore, it does seem like what he wants is review of his entitlement to remain in this country, not simply what habeas provides, which is release from custody. Well, no, absolutely, Your Honor. He wants review of the
6: removal order, which entails custody. The custody will be illegal if the removal order is. But let me, let me offer th- three points about this. The first is we think the government is raising an issue that's already ultimately been decided by this Court. Congress began regulating immigration in 1875. Soon thereafter, the government made the exact argument that they're making now, well, this isn't really habeas. We're just restraining you from coming in the country or restraining you from leaving. And the Court specifically could not have been more specific in rejecting that argument. That's the Nishimura-Iku case in 1892. It was the Chin Yao case a few years later, and even before EQ was Jung Ha-Lung. For the next 60 years in the finality, reviewed those cases. And the other point I would make about that is if the government's right that habeas doesn't even apply to deportation, then even lawful permanent residents would not be entitled to habeas, because the well, restraint point would be
5: the same with respect to them. And, and, and that's uh, not what they're saying at all, though. They're, they're making a very clear distinction between inadmissibility and deportation and relying on Landon versus Placencia in many other cases. So I think that's an overstatement of their position. Well, So you're absolutely right,
6: Justice Governor, and, and I, I'm simply – responding to their independent argument, what they called an independent argument in the opening brief, and and trying to respond to Justice Alito's question that this isn't classic habeas. They do try and get out from under that by then going to a meaningful ties test and using placentious. You're absolutely right. But with respect to Justice Alito's question, those cases specifically answered. The exact same arguments were made. ECU could not have been more clear. We know that we're simply — you're simply asking to remain in the country. And they said that
0: is nonetheless Proper for habeas, yeah, but there, but, there's. But, there, there, st- following up on Justice Alito's point and the, the government's uh, reliance on it, Munaf does say that uh, there they were not seeking simply release; they wanted uh, humanitarian protection to get out of out of the country. La- release was the last thing they wanted, and and to, this case is arguably the same. Since again, the uh, release could be provided uh, under their normal practice uh, to these uh, individuals by taking them out of the country uh, uh, to another country. They don't want that to happen. They want to be released uh, into the into the population. And Munaf made, I think, pretty clear that that type of humanitarian release was not the purpose of of habeas.
3: Well,
6: Your Honor, a few a few points on that. I think Munaf was different because they didn't want to be released where they were arrested, which was Iraq. They came to Iraq. They didn't want to be released there. What they wanted, I think, as the opinion makes clear, is affirmative help from the United States to fly them back to the United States. Our client simply wants release where he was arrested. Now, the government says, well, we can release him in Sri Lanka, but, of course, that would be denying him relief on the merits. That's exactly what he fears. And so I think what the government is sort of implying is, well, you, you can get out of this. Just simply give up. I mean, if that were true, contempt cases wouldn't fall under
0: habeas. I, I think that the, the analogy that they press uh, uh, depends upon the fact that it's conceded that the individual does not have a right uh, to
6: be in the United States. Right. And so no — Imran, and I want to be clear about this, has an absolute substantive right to be in the United States. And that's not what habeas does. The value of the suspension clause, is the frame or sort, was not to create rights, but to ensure that the grave power of restraint is never used except in accordance with law. So if Congress would or limit further limit statutory rights, maybe even take the momentous step of withdrawing from our refugee treaties, then they would be reducing rights. But habeas would still lie to make sure that you are not restrained except in accordance with positive law. That's the value for the framers. So the government's discussion about he has no absolute right to be here is, is sort of beside the point for habeas. Habeas was not designed to create substantive rights. It was to ensure that the, the law was, was followed. And so I want to turn to what the but, government but on — But uh,
5: on the question of uh — History, uh, you make a point, but on the question of precedent in Landon versus Plasencia, and I just want to get your reaction to this. You know what sentence it is. Justice O'Connor, writing for eight justices, says the court has long held that an alien seeking initial admission to the United States requests a privilege and has no constitutional rights regarding his application. Okay. So that's a statement of law for eight justices. Why is that statement wrong? Or if it's not wrong, why doesn't it control here? I think what the Court was saying there, as we understand it,
6: was specific to due process. The entire case was about due process. There was no question of judicial review or habeas, and I think what the Court was doing was distinguishing between Different people at a port who had procedural due process rights. That was the context of the sentence. I it's think it the would context.
5: Be a, the sentence no constitutional right. That, but rights. I think it
6: would be a lot in a case that didn't involve judicial review to take one sentence and say we're wiping away all the finality error cases. We're not discussing them. The difference is between due process and habeas is stark. As Justice Sotomayor pointed out, the suspension clause predated due process. Due process and habeas have never been hinged in this court's cases. So you take Mazai and Kanaf, which established no procedural due process for people at the ports. They expressly held that they didn't have procedural due process, but then they went on in habeas to review the statutory and regulatory claims. They had very few statutory and regulatory claims on the merits, but the courts still reviewed them to make sure that the
7: positive law was being followed. But wasn't it true in the in the finality era cases that the individuals uh, once it was determined that they had not been properly detained, they did have a right to be in the United States, because in that, in that era, for most of that era, or much of that era, there were not very many restrictions on immigration to the United States. And that's the difference between that case and this case. Well, I, I don't think so, Your Honor. I think for, for two reasons. One
6: is – the, the inadmissibility relief point, I, I, as I said before, there were finality error cases. That's the Acardi case, suspension of deportation, even though they were concededly removal. That's Todd v. Waldman, even though the refugees were, were illiterate and therefore were inadmissible. They were excused from that. Because. But the other point is that the court throughout the finality error always reviewed whether they fell within the statute or not. That's the GJO case, E.Q., all of those finality-era cases were looking at whether they fell within the statute. There were restrictions. I mean, obviously there weren't as many as now, but there absolutely were restrictions. And all the cases we cite on pages 13 through 15 of our brief are all cases where the Court is looking at did they fall within the statute or the regulations.
7: In any of those cases, and I mean, it's, it's — did the Court say anything more than when relief was granted? Did that — was the relief anything other than you are released? Well absolutely, and so the relief- Other than a cardi and the other case you signed, right. so, which are, which are in a, perhaps in a category of their own. But in, for most of those finality error cases, wasn't the relief just you are released? No, Your Honor, the, those cases established the principle in immigration
6: that the government would get the benefit of a new hearing, that they didn't simply have to release the person and let them go, that there would be a new hearing where there was a legal defect that the government could potentially fix. So that's in addition to the case yeah, okay, of Mahler, Johnson. That,
7: right. At the end of that, the relief, is there any indication that at the end of the whole process, what the person would get, what the alien would get, is anything other than release, which is what habeas provides?
6: Well, that's, that's what it would happen here, Your Honor. So we would, if we had a new hearing and passed, we would be able to apply in a full hearing for asylum or withholding. And if we won, he would be allowed to remain in the country. The reason we're not asking for full release is not because for, it's for our benefit. It's for the government's benefit. What this Court has said in Boumediene is the Court doesn't have to, in habeas, permit, permit full release. It can give the government another chance. So the cases are legion in, in, in our brief of where they sent it back for a new hearing. Maybe the person failed and then was deported. Maybe they passed and were allowed to stay, but it would be a new hearing. Council.
3: Just on, on that particular thing, it seemed to me in the discussion, not so much from the brief, that the government, taking the Chinese cases and so forth, was saying, but of course he can seek a writ of habeas corpus. Of course he can. Now we're before the judge on the writ. What's your argument? the judge says. And then I think their point is that he can't argue that there was a factual mistake below. Now, if you read the statute, it says he can't argue anything. It says all he can say is, was there or was there not a notice? So that can't be right, I don't think. But as applied to your case, maybe there is some kind of of uh, limitation on the extent to which the uh, judge can look at the factual findings, etc. That's quite different from saying none at all. All right. If we take that view, should we then send it back to the Ninth Circuit? Or was it the Ninth? Yeah, okay. Send it back to whatever circuit <laughs> in order for them to determine whether under this statute, how it applies does it mean since the, nobody can make any argument no matter how outlandishly the uh, service acted, let them work out in the first instance whether there's room for limitations on what kinds of arguments you can make, how much discretion w- right. what what would what do you think of yeah this? so so I think you you i want
6: to um answer it. All the different things no. packed into your question. I think a remand to flesh out our particular claims would not be inappropriate <laughs> since the Court of Appeals and District Court didn't unpack our particular claims. But I want to address two, two other points that you made. One is in the Martinez brief, which was, Martinez was the companion case to Heckley v. Barber. And I would just refer the court to the, to the SG's brief in that case. The government was very clear that the suspension clause requires some review, that the finality-era statutes limited review to the constitutional requirement. The government says, well, we conceded only statutory claims. That's even more than I understand them to be conceding now. But they also lopped off part of the quote, which was anything contrary to law. That's on page 20 of their brief. The point about the facts, I think, is a critical one, because – Mr. Needler kept saying fact-laden, so I think that's conspicuous in that he's not saying historical facts. He knows we are not challenging the historical facts. We don't claim a right to challenge the historical facts. Our position is twofold. One is that during the finality or contrary to what the government said respectfully, the courts routinely reviewed mixed questions. That's the Roald case where the court said, look, you have to be – meaningfully associated with the Communist Party and then went on to look extensively at the facts. What did he do at the Communist bookstore? What was the purpose? Those are the cases on page 50 of our brief mixed questions. But the the more fundamental point I want to make is we are okay if the Court wants to reserve whether all application of law to fact is reviewable. Our, Our point here is that there has to be review at least for gross misapplications of the statute. Because at that point, where no one reasonably could conclude that on these historical facts you didn't meet the statutory standard, at that point what you're seeing is really a misunderstanding of the legal standard.
8: What are the concrete issues that uh, could be raised on habeas in this case?
6: So... Your Honor, our two principal claims are statutory and regulatory, and let me, let me deal with the statutory claim. What we are saying is on these historical facts, no asylum officer could reasonably have concluded that he did not meet the low significant possibility standard, the very low standard, which is a significant possibility of ultimately satisfying the asylum standard, which in itself is just a one in ten chance. And I'm going into the merits now, but the reason we say that we are okay with a standard that says egregious error, clear error, no reasonable adjudicator, because at that point you are reaching a legal error, is because the asylum officer by statute is required to look at the reports on country conditions. Every report, as the amicus briefs from the asylum experts and the Sri Lanka experts point out, there is an exact MO on how Tamil people are persecuted in Sri Lanka. They, men arrive in a white van, they abduct the person, they blindfold the person, they beat and torture him. The asylum office in our case accepted every one of those historical facts but yet still said he didn't even meet the low significant possibility standard. That's impossible. So if this Court were to send it back and say at least where there's a legal error, which means the misapplication was so egregious that there had to be a misunderstanding of the legal standard, that would satisfy us, we would prevail. We do believe that the historical cases show application of a lot of fact was routinely reviewed always, even where they were fact-laden, but that is not necessary in our case.
7: See, what you've just said illustrates how far-reaching the argument that you are making is, because as I understand it, there was nothing in the administrative record. Now, maybe uh, your client didn't understand what was going on, but — all he said was that people drove up and they beat me, and that's it. And he, they, the officer, said, uh, "Are you a member of a political party?" And he said, "No." So that you're saying that, on those facts, knowing nothing more than the fact that he was beaten up in Sri Lanka and he's a Tamil, that that's enough to provide that, that provides a sufficient basis for asylum.
6: Right, well, so, so two things, Mr. Lito. One is that, of course, the merits are not up here. And if we lose, we lose. But I do want to point out that there were far more facts that showed he precisely fit the pattern. And, and I would also say, just to put a pin in it, that the amicus brief show by people from Sri Lanka or other countries would not either understand what was being asked or want to reveal that it was the government. But it was much more specific than that. It was men in a van. That's, a, that's what's always used. It's called the white van phenomena. He repeatedly said he thought he was arrested. He was blindfolded. That's part of the MO. So it was the exact pattern. That's why we think we could prevail. But ultimately, this Court just needs to decide, is there habeas review? And at least for legal errors, where the, egregious, the application was so egregious that there had to be a misunderstanding <coughs> of the standard. I want to focus also can on I, — Can I yes. just
2: — I want to understand the limits of your theory. Um, I thought the Court below said there had to be habeas relief for review of facts and law. Are you disavowing the broadness of my understanding of what the the Court below said?
6: Um, I would just put it as I read the Court of Appeals. Decision differently and that okay. there was not <laughs> review of historical facts and we are not pressing that nor the exercise of discretion. We believe mixed questions, legal claims and constitutional claims, but again, even if this court wants to narrow it to only egregious, egregious application, because I'm Why still Why are you
2: using the word egregious? Uh, Where, that's almost seems like whole cloth. It's either mixed or not. Well,
6: Your Honor, I think if you wanted to say, for this purposes of this case, only legal claims and reserve whether mixed questions, I'm simply saying that when it becomes so agreed as when no adjudicator could reasonably have concluded on these facts that it met the standard, I think at that point it would be a legal error because it would be a misunderstanding. Because I think what this Court has pointed out in the past is you can't just have the adjudicator put boilerplate language for the standard, because then you really don't know. I mean, the — Uh, someone who's writing an opinion over and over about the same things will get the standard, at least boilerplate, get it right. Here it's even worse because these are pre-printed forms with the standard. So you'll really never actually know if the asylum officer is understanding what these statutory terms mean except through the application. And at some point where the application is so – either no reasonable adjudicator, clear error, egregious. I think that does rise to a legal error. I want to also make a point about
8: I just ask you, you're not trying to get any mileage out of the fact that the alien was on U.S. soil. He didn't have any documentation. He surreptitiously got here. You're not distinguishing him because he managed to get U.S. soil from somebody who never got — who was never in the United States in the first place?
6: We, we are distinguishing them, Your Honor. You we, we believe someone outside the country who uh, — unless for some Reason U.S. forces were overseas restraining him, and that would be a different situation. That's not the typical deportation. I think if they were outside the country, they wouldn't be restrained by the U.S. They would have, and there might also be extraterritoriality issues. We're simply saying where the person is on U.S. soil, and the body controls.
8: And so- does that that cover the person who comes to the port of entry and is stopped there?
0: Yes, Your Honor, and so I, I may have misunderstood. Yes, what your concession or or not? I'm sorry, Your Honor. I, I didn't understand your yes. Is it, it that the person at the port of entry is covered or not covered? By they are concession? covered
6: by habeas, and the reason is because the ports of entry are typically on U.S. soil. An airport or even a land port will generally be a hundred feet or some into U.S. soil. Do you
4: think there's a way of distinguishing that case from yours?
6: I think, historically, the Court has not for habeas. I think the Court could reserve questions about people at ports because our person entered the country. Historically, the Court has said habeas applies when you're in U.S. soil. At ports, it's different procedural for procedural due process because that's more context-specific. And the Court has drawn a line for due process purposes, at least, between people who have entered and people at the port. I think, Your Honor, could reserve that question on habeas. Um, for this case because our
0: person did enter the country but, but and it wasn't at a port. That's a significant expansion, it seems to me, from someone who's here and, and anybody can get to a port of entry, right? Well, Your
6: Honor, so, so that goes to, I think, the burden. I mean, there are 9,000 cases in the universe that could have been in habeas. The government points out in their in their reply they go to 100,000. Well, those are people who who didn't need habeas because they passed. So we're talking about 9,000 9,000 people. I, I was Th- that includes the people at, at a port of entry? Yes, it does, Your Honor. And so what I would give the Court a couple of statistics about that. Since the Ninth Circuit it's issued its ruling, and that's basically a year ago now, there have been, as our count, 9,500 people who failed their CFI and who could have filed a habeas under our rule. Only 30 have. One-third of 1 percent, three out of every 1,000. The reasons are practical. People are removed so quickly, they're at the border, they can't find lawyers. Even in regular immigration proceedings, pro se from an immigration judge to the Board of Immigration Appeals is only 3 percent. It's much harder at the border. The other thing that will happen is the district courts will lay down some standards, whatever nonprofits. Our filing habeas was well no, we can't challenge historical facts, we can't challenge credibility, your your claim is frivolous, we are not going to file it. And you get no mileage out of filing because there is no automatic stay of removal. So just by filing doesn't mean you'll get to stay can in I, the country. Can I
5: pick up on the Chief Justice's question? You are saying a non citizen who arrives at a port of entry. Has never been in the United States, not lawfully admitted to the United States. Nonetheless, has a right under the U.S. Constitution to judicial review of the executive's decision to say they're not admissible.
6: Right. So let me let me make two points. Is that correct? I think it's correct. Yes. You're under, Sorry. The, the answer is yes. The reason is from the finality error cases. That's the very first finality error case, and in fact, most of the cases. Someone at a port of entry. That's Nishamir Eku. Comes by boat, gets here, wants to be admitted. The Court says no review of facts, which is the part of the opinion that the government was quoting, doesn't quote the second part, which is undoubtedly there has to be habeas for the, le- for the review of the legality. The point I want to point out, so the reason I'm using the 9,000 number and the reason the government's using that is because those are the asylum numbers. People who come here as a tourist – reach a port and say, I'd like to go to Disneyland, they're not going to sit in detention and file a habeas if someone says, no, you're a tourist visa. And that's why judicial review has been available forever at a port, but you
0: don't see mountains of, of habeas cases. Well, There's just the no concern, grounds. I don't think the concern is people who come here to go to Disneyland. Well, I, I, I think
6: the people who come here and don't have Asylum claims are those type of claims and are clearly inadmissible are not going to file habeas petitions. No one's going to file them because there's not going to be a ground to stay here. That's the reason in asylum cases People file them. But it's, all, it's, again, as a practical matter, it's not very many. 30 out of 9,500 since the Ninth Circuit. That's the countrywide, 30 out of 9,500. The other point I want to make about the burden is the district courts will be able to dispose of these very quickly. They don't have to review credibility determinations. They're not reviewing historical facts. The administrative record is puny. In, in the printed uh, booklets here, it's 28 pages. It's about a seven-minute read. The only other thing they would look at, which is subsumed within the record, is the few pages of country reports on Sri Lanka, which would have told them if someone's abducted in a van and blindfolded, that is almost certainly uh, by the government forces seeking to persecute Tamils on, on political grounds. You're, you're
5: reviewing Nick's questions, though, correct? But only — as part of the record, which, again, is very, very — That's very — that's very difficult in many cases, though. I don't know that that's going to be that easy. Well, I think certainly there's
6: going to be deference. But I think, Your Honor, even to decide our case, we are are okay with you saying not every mixed question where we have a difference of judgment needs to be reversed. But at least where it's so egregious that you can't possibly have understood the standard — we believe we go back to district court and the district court looks at the few pages from the U.S. State Department reports on Sri Lanka. There is no way that the, the district court could say, well, the Assam officer clearly understood what was going on. Maybe the Assam officer didn't think he could use circumstantial evidence and therefore made dispositive, our client not telling him who persecuted him. If that's true, that's a uh, pure error of law. But either way, at some point, the egregious it, because I don't think the government gave you a clear answer on even, and this goes back to Justice Breyer's question to me, on exactly what's reviewable. The government's talking about fact-laden questions, but what if they just didn't give you a hearing at all? What if they didn't give you a translator? What if they said, we're not going to give you asylum because of your religion, your race? The government is taking that position that even those errors are not reviewable, that cannot possibly be the suspension. Clo- Sorry. Uh,
0: thank you, Council. Thank you, Your Honour. Uh, five minutes, Mr. Needler.
1: Yes, uh, several points. Uh, first of all, uh, by our count, uh, since the Ninth Circuit's decision, there have been 100 habeas cap- cases filed, and the uh, the potential for a flood would be, of course, far greater if this court holds that there is a right to file a habeas seeking review of a negative, credible uh, fear determination. Uh, this Court's decision in St. Cyr referred to review of pure questions of law and constitutional claims, in other words, statutory interpretation. And the the finality-era cases really fit into that mold, Even even where they do apply. There's no suggestion that when the Court said that Congress could vest a determination of uh, of inadmissibility, much less a, a, uh, not passing a credible fear of screening uh, for somebody who's inadmissible. But e- even for determining excludability, Congress didn't or the Court didn't suggest there was an exception for something that might be characterized as an egregious uh, um, uh, uh, misapplication or, or review of the facts.
2: We're still going to my basic question to you earlier, putting aside his claim. Let's talk about a pure legal claim. They didn't hold any interview with me at all. i'm sorry i, I they didn't have hold an interview with me at all. Is there habeas relief in that case? I'd, pure matter of law. The I, I, statute requires. That, that, well, an it's individual. not a pure
1: matter of law. The question of whether there was a, a, a hearing uh, is there's a factual element to that. But there, this system at the administrative level builds in protections for that. There's supervisory review. If there, Cancel, there are forms you're, you're for notice. you you're
2: nitpicking. Get to the point. No, I don't Which think. Which is, if there's I don't a think Pure there, question of law.
1: I'd, I don't it think can, there no. would there
2: be habeas relief. Really I, I think the
1: answer is no, and one could say the same thing in, with respect to the finality. So error why cases. bother
2: doing anything? What, what good is the statutes? What good are the Congress
1: determined that, that habeas should be limited in, in, in this context, again, for credible – specifically with respect to credible fear determinations. There's no common law precedent for this. There's no finality era precedent for this. And in that context, Congress's judgment should count for something. Now, in, uh, I also want to point out that as I understand respondents' claim – Shouldn't to the re- court count for something? Hasn't this court has never, under, has never, under, has
0: never, under uh, the
2: habeas?
1: this court has never said that. Mr. And again, Munroff, I'm Mr. sorry, could Neidler, you
0: answer Mr. Needler? Mr.
2: Needler, let me finish my question. Yeah, we have the Great Rift. It was there to ensure that the executive acts according to law. What's left if you tell me that there are laws, but there's no judicial review, of whether those laws are being followed or not that's my question yeah, and and and
1: my answer is munaf and 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 the pre, the 100-year-old precedent the munaf stood for where a determination about whether somebody should return to another country because of conditions there is simply It's not a
2: returning he was there the question was a legal one which was whether or not um, he should be turned over by the American forces or not, the Court said even if he should have been, we're not going to step in in this
1: situation. But the, but the court drew on the rule of non-inquiry, which applies in the extradition context, which is about sending someone out from the United States to another country. I want to make another point. When respondent talks about review for egregious errors, I think he's talking about bringing in stuff that is outside the administrative record and trying to demonstrate to the court that if only the review, the asylum officer, or the IJ, had looked at this, it would have reached a different conclusion. That, is, that goes far beyond even traditional administrative administrative review. But the administrative proceedings in this case, for example, the asylum officer's uh, record, are just notes. They're not a verbatim transcript. They are there to assist the immigration judge in this self-contained internal review of whether someone has made even the showing necessary for a threshold credible fear screening. They are not designed for judicial review, and the suggestion that there would be judicial review in habeas corpus unprecedented under this court's decisions or the common law would would require effectively to change the administrative system uh, as well but congress determined that the that the three tier screening that it provided and limited judicial review is necessary
0: is essential to get control of the nation's borders thank you counsel the case is submitted